Good morning, Grace. Thank you, praise team, for leading us uh, before God's throne in worship. Today, as we get into our message or into the Word, I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of Mark, chapter 1. And we are in our series, just launched, uh, entitled uh, Man at Work, as we look at the Son of Man, which is a title that is given to Jesus, and looking at, at Him at work as He has paved the way for us to get to God. Now, before we get into that message, I have a question that I'd like to ask everyone here. How many of you here are White Sox fans? Wow, I had no idea we had so many people that love the minor leagues. Um, <laughs> I went there. Yes, I did. Um, no, the World Series just ended, and we understand if you have, uh, yeah, of course, we have some Cardinals fans that are here. And uh, as I've been thinking about baseball, I mean, Chicago fans are, of course, not out can't be outdone in that the World Series is being celebrated, but yet Chicago baseball still manages to be in the news. And why is that? Why is that? Because of the signing of Theo Epstein. That's right. Theo Epstein, who is now the president of baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs. Now, if you're not a baseball uh, lover, you're not a fan, this is a big deal because Theo Epstein came from the, uh, the Red Sox, all right, the Boston Red Sox. And it's a big deal because this was, this guy did seemingly the impossible. I mean, there are two teams that have always been known as just major losers in baseball. The Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox, both very historic franchises, um, but both of them un are under, have been under curses, right? You know, the Boston Red Sox were under a curse called the Curse of the Bambino with Babe Ruth, who played for the Boston Red Sox, and he was traded. And after he was traded, there was supposedly a curse that was placed upon the Red Sox that they would not win another championship. And it took 86 years for that to happen. So between 1918 and 2004, they didn't win anything. They just com had a complete giant drought. But with the signing of Epstein, he became the general manager of the Boston Red Sox. He was the, the youngest general manager in Major League Baseball history. He was hired in 2002. Within two years, he brought a championship to this team. Now he comes to the Chicago Cubs. I mean, he won two championships, actually, with the Red Sox. And now he comes to the Cubs. Now, the Cubs are one of the oldest baseball teams in the United States. I think it goes back to 1870, 1871, something along that line. And they haven't won a World Series for how many years? Wow. <laughs> I wish you quoted scripture like that. All right. 103 years. Yeah. It's the longest drought in Major League Baseball history. 103 years. Now, the last time that the Cubs were in the World Series was what year? 1945. 1945 was the last time they were in a World Series. And it's also the date or the period of time when there was a game at Wrigley Field when the, the Chicago curse happened. Now, if you remember, if you are at least familiar with the story, uh, trying to get it nailed down, uh, all the facts nailed down is, uh, is a little bit difficult because there appear to be different versions. But there's a man who's a Greek man, who uh, the guy that started the Billy Goat Tavern in Chicago, uh, brought his, brought, bought two tickets. I think he paid like $14.50, one for himself and one for his, his goat. <laughs> He bought a ticket for his goat. Of course, only in Chicago uh, does that happen. So he buys a ticket for his goat, but they won't let him in um, because, according to the people around, the goat smells. <laughs> That's the reason why. So after it being removed, he said, you know what? I he puts a curse on the team that they won't win another World Series 
in Wrigley Field or just in history. It's hard to get it nailed down. And there have been all these attempts to reverse the curse. I mean, even taking the guy's son and bringing a goat and all these different things. I mean, it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, but some people really believe this stuff. And, you know, we don't believe in curses like that. There's no, but there is a thing called the curse of the fall. Have you ever remember the song, the, the, Far As the Curse is Found? Remember that from Handel's Messiah? talks about that, far as the curse is found. Because we're all under a curse, you know that? The curse of the fall. Every one of us sin. Every one of us, every one of us understands suffering. And every one of us will die one day. And that's all a result of the curse that happened because of Adam and Eve eating of the fruit. And each one of us are recipients of that curse. And we are in some ways a little bit like the Cubs. We're lovable losers. I mean, we are. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're lost because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're lost without hope, without God in the world, as the Scripture clearly says. And we're desperate for a victory, but we can't get that victory on our own. See, God brought someone in that could reverse the curse. And that's Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He reversed the curse he came and lived among us. He understood curses. See, that's one of the reasons that Epstein's uh, been brought in is because he understands a curse that the Red Sox had and that kind of thing, and he ended up bringing a victory to that franchise. He understands it. He's come here to help do the same thing. Now, I'm not saying he's any type of savior. I'm not saying that he's going to do any of that. He is a man just like anybody else. But the parallel is still there in that the Son of Man came to reverse the curse that has been upon us and give us victory and show us the pathway to victory. See, that's why Epstein's been brought in to show, hey, you've been there. Show us the pathway to victory. Now, we want to win. See, the Son of Man comes in to show us, and he does show us the pathway of victory over sin and death. So I've entitled today's message... A victorious Christian life. How do we live a victorious Christian life? What's the game plan? What do we need to see? And today we're going to look at the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We're going to look in the beginning of Mark. We're going to be going through verses 9 through 15. And in this, these, just this little small segment of Scripture, we're going to see the Son of Man, how He came to pave the way for us, and some of the things that He did that we can do to have a victorious Christian life. So it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church, Grace Campus, to stand for the reading of God's Word. So please stand with me as we read from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Uh, If you can't see, just you don't have a Bible, just listen in. I'll be reading from verses 9 through 15 in the English Standard Version. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence, Lord, knowing that you saw us in our hapless estate. We were hapless, helpless, and hopeless. And yet, Lord, you sent your Son to pave the way to God. Lord, may we see and emulate His life and apply the truths of the Scripture today that we're reading, that we're learning, that we're studying about to our lives, that we might live victorious lives. 
Lord, help us. Guide us, guard us. Remove any sin or unbelief that is keeping us from seeing you. And today, Lord, if there is someone here who has not yet trusted in you, I pray that you might open up your heart to see the truth of who you are and what it means to have a saving relationship with you so that your name might receive praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last, word, last week we talked a little bit about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer who paved the way for Jesus. He was the messenger who kind of prepared the way. He was the, one of the uh, voice of the one shouting in the wilderness. Now today, though, we're going to see the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, who is John's relative, he comes out into the wilderness as we see in those days. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, remember, we talked that John, uh, or Mark, is a very brief book. It's the brief out of all of the Gospels. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke together form what is called the synoptic Gospels, in that they all have a similar viewpoint from which they see things. And John comes along and just blows it out of the water, looking at it from a completely different angle. But Mark, as most scholars believe, is the, one of the first, if not the first gospel, and the one in which Matthew and even Luke used as a resource in formulating their own. We talked a bit about this last week. There's only, I think, 678 verses in Mark, 16 chapters. It is, again, the earliest probably written gospel, written by John Mark, who was not an apostle, but he was a follower of Jesus. He was uh, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and uh, he got his perspective, as we talked a little bit about last week that I don't want to revisit today, but he got his perspective from, uh, from Peter. Peter was John's close friend. He had given many different details. We can see this just by some of the details that were given or are given within the Gospel of Mark. John and Mark wouldn't have known about unless it was somebody really close to Jesus giving him that information. So we have John Mark. He's writing this, and he starts off talking about Jesus' baptism. Now, people were going out to be baptized by John in the wilderness. People of all kinds of, I mean, just people that understood they had sin. They were going out to this wild-eyed, wild you know, haired guy and wearing his, uh, his pretty strange clothing and a pretty strange diet. And yet, they're coming out to him to be baptized for the repentance of sin. And then Jesus shows up. Now, there's something very puzzling about this. If we, we stop and we think about it for a moment... We are baptized in order to show repentance from sin and to identify with our Savior. But Jesus had no sin. The scripture is very clear that in him there is no sin. Jesus had no sin. He is, that's why it's the incarnation. God in flesh. He assumes the flesh of his creation. That's why he had an, uh, an earthly mother but a divine father. Because he had to be divine and he had to identify with man. But yet he himself did not have sin. So he had no sin to repent of. So I, I remember asking myself the question, and perhaps you have too, why then does Jesus need to be baptized? Now Mark doesn't give us a great deal of explanation, because remember, he is, he is just huffing it through this book. I mean, he's just trekking. He's, and it's continually, he uses the word immediately. It's a sense of urgency. Urgency. He is moving through the book. He is getting to the, the passion of the Christ, the, the, week, the holy week where Jesus gives his life for the redemption of many. And he leaves out some of the details that the other gospel writers focus on. For instance, Matthew and Luke both focus on the birth of Christ, while Mark doesn't mention it at all. 
he begins it with John the Baptist, the forerunner. So he's focusing on the public life of Jesus. He is moving it, the entire thing, to the cross so we can see that he accomplished redemption from or for sins, or for us, from sin. So we see him immediately, that word immediately, remember it appears about 40 times within this book. So in 678 verses, the word immediately is there, moving this book along. And we see this baptism of Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't draw out a lot of it. He does spend some time, and I'd like us just to look for a minute, minute at this. So he goes out to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And I want us to keep that thought in our mind. Why does he need to be baptized? Keep that in our mind as we, we look at the rest of this. So he is baptized, which the word in there means to dip or immerse, to go under the water. So Jesus is baptized. He goes under the water by John. And he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Like a dove. Now, it's very important there. It's not a literal dove. It's like a dove. It's uh, what we talk, the difference between adjectival phrase or an adverbial phrase. And it could be that it appeared to him uh, as it's coming down, like as a dove. But it's like a dove, meaning that the Spirit appears in, in such a way that it looks like a dove that's coming down. It's like a dove. The Spirit is coming down. Not a literal dove is there, but it's like a dove. And it symbolizes the Spirit of God, obviously. Now, you have all three members of the Trinity present right now. You've got God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have God the Son who is being baptized. And you have God the Holy Spirit there. All three are participating within this kind of public act and showing the blessing of Jesus Christ and what he's doing. Now, as we, we got that, we just laid out the scene. We're trying to, to get an idea of it. We have to still ask ourselves the question, why does he, why does he need to be baptized? See, John the Baptist had the same question. In the book of Matthew chapter 3, which also records the baptism of Jesus, Jesus comes to, up to him to be baptized, and John goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't I, I don't need to baptize you. Matter of fact, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Now the question is, is what does that mean to, to fulfill all righteousness? What, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, here's, here's what it means. It means that Jesus is taking his place with us. In other words, he has gone so far to identify with us. See, the first step in, under, in living a victorious Christian life is understanding, and it might seem a little strange, but understanding how far the Son of God was willing to go to identify with us. His identification. That's a, that's a major point. We have to recognize his identification. Now, it might seem a little bit strange to us. How can we just recognize identification? How does that mean a victorious Christian life? Have you ever heard the expression... Don't talk to me unless you've walked a mile in my shoes. You ever, you ever heard that? Or you ever been through a struggle in your life and something just terrible and people come alongside and give you counsel and most of the time you find it's just they don't understand because they've not been there? The people that can speak to you so clearly in the midst of your situation are those who have been there. That's why we have different groups that people go to for support. For those who are, for instance, have had a spouse die, they gather with other people that have had their spouse die so because they, they understand what the other person is going through. Similar, if someone's gone through, uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, these are people that have come alongside one another because they've been there, 
They understand what the situation's like and how to deal with it and how to overcome it. They've been there. See, that's what Jesus is doing. He is taking his place with us and saying, you know what? I'm taking my place with sinful man, even though I don't have sin. I am intentionally choosing to identify with you. I am walking a mile in your shoes. Matter of fact, I've come to this earth. I am taking off eternality for a moment and putting on the clothing of temporality. I am the creator, assuming the flesh of my creation and making myself susceptible to the very things that my creation is being susceptible to. Same temptations, the same struggles, the same sin, the same sufferings. That's what he was doing for us. I mean, that's an amazing thought. When someone comes and is willing to go with you through something, I mean, not just say they're going with it, through it with you, but not leaving your side, feeling your struggles, feeling your pain, going through it because of their love for you, that's, that's phenomenal. Once we realize that, it, it takes on a whole new meaning as we can see Him coming alongside us. I mean... Have you ever seen the TV show Undercover Boss? How many of you ever seen that TV show? Undercover Boss. It's a reality show that depicts CEOs of different companies who go to the front lines of their company for a week, usually in the lowest paying jobs, to discover what it's really like. Now, these bosses invariably spend time getting to know the people who work in the company, learning about their professional and personal challenges. And at the end of their week uh, undercover, the executives return to their true identity and request the employees they worked with individually to corporate headquarters. The bosses there reveal their identity, reward hardworking employees through campaign, promotion, and financial rewards, and while other employees are giving trainer or training or better working conditions. I mean, that's what the Son of Man did. He's an undercover boss. He comes into our world, lives in the conditions in which we find ourselves, takes our sins and our struggles upon himself. Perhaps another way of looking at it is uh, two years ago, Prince William the future ruler of the United Kingdom spent a night sleeping under a bridge in London in freezing temperatures as part of his work supporting a charity for the homeless. The prince, along with his private secretary and the head of the charity for young homeless people, bedded down in sleeping bags on top of cardboard. The prince answered a challenge to sleep on the streets, saying he would do so if the charity would double its efforts to help the homeless. I cannot, after one night, even begin to imagine what it must be like to sleep rough on London streets night after night, the prince said after his experience. Poverty, mental illness, drug and alcohol dependency, and family breakdown cause people to become and then stay homeless. I hope that by deepening my understanding of the issue, I can help do my bit to help the most vulnerable on our streets. See, the prince became a pauper. So we can have plenty. And the son of man, in essence, the the great prince of peace, came to live among us the most destitute conditions in order to understand our plight and provide us with redemption. It's an amazing picture. The great Prince of Peace, he did, he stayed here. He understood the condition. He third, being here 33 years and then died on the cross for our sins and then rose again from the dead so that all who place their faith in him might be saved. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to, go, had to identify with us. When we think about that, it's totally amazing. God loves us so much that he came to us. I'm amazed more that I think about it, and the more that I study world religions, how incredible that really is. I remember studying Islam and read a great book. I read a great book called Whose Religion is Christianity by a, a scholar from Yale by the name of Laman Sane. He's an African. And he, he contrasts and he talks about, he contrasts uh, Islam and Christianity. And he says, you know, one of the major differences is, is the scriptures. He said the scriptures go in to, foreign, to a foreign country and then they are interpreted into the language of the people. So it transforms from within. Whereas Islam does something completely different. It forces them to learn Arabic, forces them to address, put on Islamic dress and do Islamic customs. And instead of um, transforming from within, it is conforming on the exterior. See, the Son of Man came in to, became incarnate to assume our flesh, to transform us, living among us, living in history, putting on Jewish dress, observing Jewish customs, speaking a certain language, Aramaic and Greek, and he knew Hebrew. He comes from within, and he lives among the people. He worked alongside the people. He saw suffering. He saw sin firsthand. He experienced what we experience on a daily basis. It wasn't separating the sacred and the secular. I was speaking to uh, my neighbor this past week. We went out to um, breakfast and uh, he's a, a Jewish man. He's also a retired professor. And we were, we were talking. He invited us over to uh, celebrate Sukkot, which is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, we struck up a conversation. And I'm trying to witness to him. And we went out and we started talking about uh, God and spiritual things. And as we were talking along the lines, he, he says, I said, well, uh, do you keep kosher, which is the Jewish dietary laws of eating certain, certain foods? He goes, I only do in my home. I said, that's very strange. I said, that seems, forgive me for being very hypocritical. And he said, well, it is, extremely. He said, you know what? I was trained, it's just growing up as a Jewish boy, I went through my bar mitzvah, I read from the Torah publicly, and after that, it was all over. And I was taught to live a certain way in the sacred 5% of my time. And the rest of my time, though, the 95% of my time was spent within the secular world. And he goes, I'm now trying to create a sacred space in my life. And I'm like, well, Christ came in all of, to experience all of life. Not just separate the secular and the sacred, but to help us and transform us so that we can look at all of life and put all of life under the supremacy of Christ. And not just show up at church or, for him, synagogue and be one way and then live our life a total other way in another place. But to transform all of life. That's what the Son of God did when he came to identify with us. Now, it is through this lens of identification that we must see his temptation. Look at verse 12 with me. The Spirit immediately, there's that word again, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, Luke and Matthew both show three temptations that Jesus experienced. Mark doesn't mention that. It seems to appear, and, and other scholars, I believe, would agree, or scholars would agree on this, that he wasn't just tempted three times, that he was tempted throughout the entire time as he was there. We have three that have been recorded for us for posterity that are representative of the whole, and they were those 
concrete temptations, but I think he experienced many more temptations while he was there. And Matthew 4 and Luke 4 give the account of the three temptations that he does where he is tempted by Satan. And it is implied there a lot more that there are than three temptations. Now, Matthew and Luke give us a slightly different order, however. And the, remember, the gospel writers weren't necessarily writing uh, chronologically. Sometimes they were writing thematically. Now, the first temptation, though, that Matthew records for us is when the devil tempted Jesus to transform the stones to make bread. Now, how does Jesus respond? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the second temptation has Satan trying to get Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus, and Satan even quotes the word there. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus, what's he do? He quotes the word of God back, and he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, I, as I look at that, and I look at the third temptation where he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just bow down and worship me. I mean, that's obvious that that's a sinful thing. But the first two temptations, as I look at that and I go, are those temptations? I mean, he's not being asked to, to lie, to, to, to make an idol of something. He's not been asked to, to look at porn or engage in some type of sexual immorality. He's not being asked to steal. He's not being asked to do any of those things. As a matter of fact, he's being asked to do something that he can do. He has the full power to do that. Have you ever thought of that? He has the full power to take the stones and make them bread. It was within his divinity to do so. I mean, if he can go tell Peter when they're asked to, to pay the tax to go out, cast his line, and a fish comes to win with the drachma, or Jesus could make the, the bread multiply, which he does in the fish, he has the full ability to do that here. So why, then, is that a temptation? And why is it a temptation, then, for him to, to jump off? I mean, he could do that, and the angels would come and keep him from hitting his foot on the ground. Why, why is that a temptation then? Here's why. Because if he did that, that is something that only he could do, we couldn't do. Then that means he would fail to identify with us. See, Jesus couldn't identify with us if he did that. He would short-circuit his purpose, in essence. So he did what we could do when confronted with temptation. And what's he do? He quotes the word of God. He's saying, I am not going to tap into my divinity right now. I'm going to live with my humanity, and I'm going to show that you can resist temptation in, in this way. Through the quoting of the word of God, through scripture, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to leave them an example that they can follow by applying scripture to every aspect of their life and every temptation in which they find themselves. So he was leaving a template for us. Because of his identification. That's how far he was willing to go for you and me. That's pretty phenomenal. There were no shortcuts. I mean, we like shortcuts. We like time-saving devices. We don't like to wait. We, we want to nuke everything. You can't microwave godliness. All right? There is no instant... I mean, there is instant holiness in, in that you trust in Christ. And you are positionally holy, but you also are to be progressively holy as you continue on in your walk with Christ. So, we have to see, or we, he leaves for us, that an, an understanding that living a victorious Christian life involves resisting temptation. Now, how do we resist temptation? This involves relying on the Spirit. That's the first thing, relying on the Holy Spirit of God, not your own spirit, 
on the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, and this is quite astonishing, the Spirit is the one who immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Because He was bringing, it was the Spirit and the Son and all the Father, they're all bringing about the redemption of man. They're all involved in it. The Spirit is helping Him identify, but he is, it's, the Spirit is the one leading Him. Not that the Spirit leads us into temptation. We pray for that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Bible is clear that God doesn't tempt us, as the book of James says. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt us. It is our own sinful desires that lead us into temptation. But when we are tempted, we must rely on the Spirit of God, as Jesus did. As the book of Romans says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God has given us His Spirit, and His Spirit is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We don't have to sin. You can say no to sin, you know that? If you are a Christian and you have the Spirit of God within you, you can say no to sin. And the reason you think, if you, you have the Spirit of God and you say, well, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling... You have to understand that every sin is a lie. Every sin masquerades itself as a lie. Once you can identify the lie, then that sin is no longer beautiful. Remember that. Identify the lie. When temptation faces you, identify the lie. See, Eve failed to identify the lie because the devil always masquerades sin as a lie. Every sin is a lie. But God doesn't want my best. That's a lie. He wants your best. God's not going to provide for me in this area. He's going to provide. He promises to do so. You're believing a lie. You're giving into fear. Don't believe the lie. Identify the lie, and you'll be able to help resist temptation. And how do we identify the lie? Part of it is relying on the the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God brings home the truth of the Word of God. The Spirit always works in harmony with the Word of God. Because remember, the Scripture is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It's God-breathed, the theopnoestos, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for preaching, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's, it's alive. It's alive. And it helps us understand and be able to look, and look at the world and be able to sift what the world is trying to sell us. It also it tells us about the world It tells us about our own hearts. It tells us how to live. It tells us what sin is. It tells us what righteousness is. And it tells us how to overcome sin. God's not left us without instructions. He's given us instructions within His Word. So it means relying on the Spirit of God, but it also means relying on Scripture. Jesus used the only resource available to us. Yes, we have the Spirit of God within us, and angels do help us as the book of Hebrews says, but Scripture is our sword. It is our help. We cannot just, we can't call on angels. We don't do that. And we, we, the Spirit of God is prompting our conscience, but it's the Scripture that brings home the pointed truth of God's Word. It is our help. And it helps us resist temptation by bringing to memory the truth of God's Word as the psalmist wrote. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. Be in the Word so much that you begin to think God's thoughts. I remember a story about a young man who was applying for a job as a computer programmer. He didn't have any education. He'd just been on computers his whole life. And he was getting interviewed by uh, the the boss, the the man who was hiring, I guess HR rep or whatever, the guy that owned the company, I think. 
And uh, he was asking me, he said, well, where'd you get your education? He says, I've never gone to college. He says, well, I'm sorry, I can't hire you. You don't have a college degree. I, we just, we can't hire you. But they kept on talking. Uh, the, the boss did like talking with the young man. And the young man started just kind of sharing his life. And he says, yeah, I had a really wild dream last night. He said, really? He said, yeah, I dreamt in code. Now, for those that don't know, it's computer code. That's pro programming. You know what that CEO said? You're hired. If you're in code so much that you're dreaming in it, then you understand it. See, it's when the Bible becomes such a part of our lives that we begin to think God's thoughts. When we're in it and we begin to meditate on it and ruminate on it, and it becomes part of us and it begins to influence our thoughts. It begins directing us, pursuing righteousness, forsaking sin. Those verses come to mind. They just come in a moment. God brings them by the Spirit of God to your mind. I remember sometimes when I was getting ready to sin, I remember the Proverbs coming uh, about feet being ru like rushing us to sin. And I'd say, I don't want to do that anymore. And then I, I remembered the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation to seize you except what is common to man, but God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out when you are tempted. And then I realized, I don't have to sin. I have a spirit of self-control. And then the truth of God's word started really finding root in my heart and directing me, enabling me to, to say no to sin. And I know many of you could testify to the same thing in your life, what the word of God has done in your life. And I pray that we all might be that way, that we all might be in the word of God. Are you in the word of God? Are we as a church in the word of God? Are we letting the scripture dictate our lives? How many of us have gotten so busy that we've just pushed the Bible out as if it were something extra instead of it being essential? I mean, if I get up in the morning, I have contacts. If I don't put in my contacts, I can't see. And I'll walk around, and I'll run into stuff. I always put them in. I always take time for it. It's like we got to put in the, our spiritual vision every morning so we can see the world through God's eyes. Be in the Word so much you begin to think God's word, thoughts, making God's Word a part of you, which is why we are teaching our children their verses in Awana. Right, kids? You know that? You're learning your verses in Awana so that you might be trained to recognize sin for what it is. Parents, it's so essential that we be teaching our children. And that's why Awana is so important, because many of these verses that these children will, will um, memorize, they might turn away from the faith, and then 50 years down the road, the verses that they learn in Awana will come back, and God will bring that to fruition. will convict of sin and bring them to the saving knowledge of who He is. So essential. Memorize the word and it will change your life, change your thinking, and come to you when you need it. Now, Jesus left us an example by achieving victory through quoting scripture, and we can too. We can also see that we will have a victorious life by reaffirming our commitment to proclamation. Proclamation. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, remember, John was arrested because he had spoken out against Herod, the ruler's marriage. He had married his sister-in-law. John spoke out uh, against him, and eventually, I mean, he was put in prison and eventually lost his head because of it. So after John was arrested, he's in jail, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, or the good news, euangelion, the word gospel, that's what it means, the good news of God. The Caesars were known to have certain gospels for themselves, what they considered to be good news for themselves. But here it's the good news from God. The good news of God, that Christ had come into the world and saying, and this is what Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, present, 
Because Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God through his, his entering into life, beginning his public ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we have a proclamation involving, involves calling people to two things. Repent from sin and believe in the Savior. There is no coming to Jesus Christ without repentance. There, that's a forgotten word in our circles today within the modern church. Some churches make the, the water down the message of Christ because it makes it more uh, palpable for individuals. Let me be very clear and, agree and say what the Word of God says. There is no coming to Christ without repentance. Without admitting, confessing our sin, admitting that we were wrong, and turning from our sins and embracing the Savior. Don't think you can come to God on your own terms. Don't think we can come to God on our own terms. We can't. Every single person in this room, we all alike under sin. And we all, in order to come to Christ, have to repent of our sins and embrace Jesus as our Savior. Well, we must be compromising, uncompromising in our calling men and women to repentance. Our job is not to get them to listen to Christian radio, wear Christian t-shirts, use Christian jargon, put a fish on their car, or anything like it. Our job is to lovingly, boldly, gracefully, and tactfully call people to repent and believe in the gospel. That's our job, and we must be unwavering. Men and women all are called to repent. There is no understanding of the gospel without repentance. There is no way to embrace the Savior without doing what the Word calls, uh, calls for. Turning to God involves two things. It means confessing or believing and repentance. Confessing means to agree with God, to, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And when we confess our sins to God and we believe that in Jesus, then we agree with Him that, that what we did was sin and it was evil. And repentance means turning from sin, a total about face, as it were to embrace Christ. Some individuals think that simply confessing their sins is enough, but it isn't. The Bible does say if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it also says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He came to save us from our sin, not so that we can stay in sin. There's a big distinction there. Some people think they can just go on in their life, as it were. Just, I could continue on in sin and have Jesus at the same time. We can't. We cannot. The Bible is unequivocal. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then we have Jesus in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We cannot embrace Christ when our hands are filled with packages of sin. Repentance is essential in order to be a Christian, just as flaps on a plane are essential to enable it to fly. As a plane takes off, uh, prepares for takeoff, taxing down the runway and gaining speed, the flaps of the plane must go down in order for the aircraft to soar. So too does the Christian need to bow the knee in repentance before we can soar with Christ. Many Christians today want to follow Jesus on their own terms. But that's like saying I'm going to rewrite the laws of aerodynamics to get my plane to fly. It's impossible, and any attempt to do so will result in my death. We must submit to the laws of aerodynamics in order for our plane to fly. And as Christians, we must submit to the law of God in order to be saved. God is the one who defines the terms of our coming to Him. We don't have a say in it. God is our Creator. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who has been offended by our sin, as David wrote. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
We will not give an account to any man at the end of time, save Christ. But the, He's the one true God. Our sin is a stench in the, God's nostrils, and we must, make, we must feel deep sorrow for our sin before we can come to Him. Our sin costs God's Son His life. Therefore, we must repent with hearts broken in godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We must also re- believe in the Savior. Put your trust in Him. Do you believe? It's like the story of the tightrope walker who walked with a wheelbarrow over a cavern. Perhaps you've heard this story. He took a wheelbarrow and he was walking on the tightrope across and he walks all the way back and the people are there cheering. And he says to them, how many of you believe I can walk across that cavern with this wheelbarrow and a person in it? Yeah, we all believe it, we all believe it. Now, who's going to volunteer? <laughs> Suddenly, faith has a different side of the story. Fear overcomes faith. We must have our faith overcome our fear. Truly trust in Christ. Lastly, how do we live a victorious life? We're to be responding with a personal or with a plan of action. A plan of action. I mean, many of us, we, we all know what it's like to feel convicted of sin. I know what it's like to, to go and hear a message and feel, oh God, you, you really convicted me of that sin. What do I do now? What do I do now? This is hopefully something that we can all do. Here's the first thing. As we saw that Jesus identified with us, are we willing to identify with him? That's the first step. And that involves repenting and believing in the gospel. And if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then here's the next step. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Part of the Great Commission, Jesus is telling his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized? It's a command of our Lord. It's an imperative. If you haven't been baptized and you know it, then you are in disobedience. The Bible is clear. We are to be baptized. And that means publicly identify with Him to go under the water. And it's the greatest, it's an outward symbol of an inner transformation. When we are baptized, when we go under the water, it's like we go under and we show, just as Jesus went, was died, was buried into the tomb and resurrected to new life, by our going under the water, we're showing that we are identifying with him in his death and rising with him in resurrection life. So have you repented and believed in the gospel? That's the first thing. You could do that today. The scripture is clear. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Repent of your sins. No good works can get you into heaven. There's no, no thing that a priest can do for you. Nothing, no one else can save you except Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Secondly, have you been baptized? Thirdly, are you placing the spiritual disciplines in your life? Are we placing the spiritual disciplines in our lives to live the type of life that God has called us to? Are we memorizing the word of God? Are we spending time with God on a daily basis? Have we let work, family, and the stresses of life crowd out God's presence from our lives? Then we are to repent and put a plan of action into place. And let me ask you, let me ask you this question. When are, you going to, when are you going to read the Word? I mean, we all can say that. I've said that in my life. I'm sure you have too. We make resolutions just like we do at New Year's. I want to do this. I want to do this. But we never follow through. 
Here's the follow-through. When are you going to do it? Right now. Here's what I want you to do. If you know that you haven't been spending that time and you know you need to, God's telling you right now that you should, think in your mind the time that you're going to read the Word. Get it in your own mind. Write it down if you need to. So you don't forget. Hold yourself to, uh, to it. Tell someone uh, right after this is over, hey, this is when I'm going to do it. I need to help you keep me accountable for it. And then you pick the time, pick the day and time. Hopefully it's the same time every day. Maybe it's at your lunch break at work. Maybe it's sitting in, uh, on the train as you're uh, going into the city. Whenever it is, make sure that you follow through that time. Now, how are you going to read it? Are you just going to practice Russian roulette for Bible reading and you flip and stick your, pencil, your, your finger down? Try to read systematically through the Word of God so you get an understanding of what God's saying in certain contexts. Pick a book of the Bible. It would be great to study Mark. We're doing that in our small group, small group series. For those that aren't in a small group, you want to be in a small group, talk to me afterwards. We'll get you into one. But we're in the middle of one right now. We just started it up a couple weeks ago. We're going through the book of Mark. We're studying these passages before we get into the Sunday service. But read just a little bit at a time, whether it's a paragraph, whether it's a chapter a day, and then to take time to meditate on it so it applies to your heart. God wants us to be reading His Word to be applying it to our life in order to resist temptation. And then to make sure that we are continually proclaiming. Because it's when you're proclaiming the Word of God, it's, it, you're, you're, your mind is transformed. Because you're on the offensive. You are putting your, your talk behind your walk. I mean, you're putting them together, hand in hand. And when you're continually telling other people about who Jesus is, it makes you want to grow closer with Jesus to walk closer with Him, to learn more about Him. And when we're continually proclaiming that truth to others, then we're more, uh, we recognize more of what it means to our own life to walk with Him and the importance of applying these spiritual truths to our lives. Today, we have someone who is going to be baptized. And uh, Rachel Reff, who's uh, going to be baptized in just a moment, we're going to have a song, and then uh, she's wants to follow the Lord in baptism. She just came to Christ just a couple of years ago. Uh, she's been coming to our church. She also attends AU, where I have some AU people here. Where are my AU people? There they are. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Um, we're glad to have you, and we're glad to have her and see this young woman take a step for Christ. Uh, but I want to encourage you, if you have not yet been baptized, please see myself or Pastor Andrew, one of the elder, other elders, and we're going to offer a baptism class next Sunday after our uh, Adult Bible Fellowship Hour, which immediately is uh, after the morning service, we have our Adult Bible Fellowship, and after that we're going to offer a class. We would encourage all of you, don't put this off. Don't put this off. Jesus is clear. It's, a, it's an act of obedience to Him to go closer to more intimately in your walk with Him. It's a sign of obedience to tell everyone, I'm identifying with Jesus Christ publicly. But before that, make sure that you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and He will save you. He will forgive you of your sins, give you purpose and new life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so delighted that You sent Your Son to identify with us. Lord, sinners though we may be, we all struggle in many ways. We're desperate for a victory. Lord, we, we understand that we can, have, we can only have victory through Your Son and through applying Your Word to our lives. And Lord, you've entrusted us also with the task to tell others about this hope that we have. Lord, we, we, don't have a, we don't need a Theo Epstein. It's not just an imaginary curse. We need a real Savior. And you've given that in the person of your Son to combat a real curse, which is what happened in the garden. 
Lord, please save souls in our midst, transform lives. Lord, I know that there are people here today that are living lives in rebellion toward you. My heart just breaks. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, have mercy upon them. Grant them the repentance that leads to life. Lord, there are others that are wavering, that feel the conviction upon their heart. I pray that you help them to confess their sins, repent, and trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for for us who we have grown lax in pursuing you, revive our hearts. Place a fire within our hearts by your Holy Spirit, enabling us to live the life that you desire. Lord, help us truly to identify with you as you have identified with us, being as we live lives that are crucified that we live in resurrection life, no longer submitting ourselves to the yoke of sin. Lord, glorify yourself in our midst and be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.